Last weekend, I had such a great time introducing an unforgettable truth that God's used to mark my life. But this weekend, we have our first guest. And I have to tell you, he's, he's going to make a big impact in your life. He's a professor, a professor of theology. And for 25 years, he was at Wheaton College and Graduate School. Now he's right here in Michigan at Calvin. And when I heard the talk that he's about to give this weekend at Northridge, it, it really, really made an impact in my life. And I felt like we had to hear it as a spiritual community. And so this weekend, I'm really excited about what God's gonna do in your life. Would you give a big Northridge welcome, Gary Burge. Thank you. Hey, it is so great being with uh, all of you here at Northridge, it really is. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And uh, I also wanna give a quick shout out to the regional campuses that are with us as well, and those of you who are online. We are so glad that we are together to, uh, this morning, uh, worshiping and learning together. Um, thanks, Brad, for that nice introduction. I sort of listen to that and I think, that is a lot of gravy for a very small turkey. <laughs> anyway, um, I do teach at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. Um, I've only been in Michigan, though, for about a year. Uh, just moved from Wheaton, so Michigan is kind of a new thing for us, and there is a lot to learn about this. Um, also, uh, we've moved out of Willow Creek, so that has been, that's, you know, Willow Creek is this smallish church over in Chicago. It's kind of the, the North Ridge of Chicago. We can think of it that way, maybe. So anyway, um, yeah, so Michigan, this has been really a new thing. Every time I'm learning where stuff is in Michigan, people put up their hand and do this mitt thing. What's up with that? This is an obviously a primary school thing that everybody gets into, and you have decals on your cars. I've never seen a decal in Illinois that said, hey, I'm from Illinois, here's the outline. I mean, I don't know what kind of symbols they would put up there. You've got the Great Lakes on stuff, you know, on the back of your car. So what would they put in Illinois? Soybeans and corn. I, that maybe, it's hard to know. Anyway, but this, we just really do like Michigan a great deal. And you, the hardest part for me is going to be, you've got this baseball team in Detroit, <clears throat> the Lions. Okay, the Tigers. You know, you talk about miracles with the Detroit Tigers. I mean, hey, the Cubs, we're a living example that miracles happen. <clears throat> So I'll get used to Detroit. I mean, it's, of course, they, they sort of know how to play softball. Anyway, the other thing that uh, I had to sort of get used to, believe it or not, when we moved here this year, get this, I thought Michigan State University was in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor. Is that a bad thing? And then I thought the University of, uh, I almost said Minnesota, Mi Michigan was down in Lansing. That was weird. And so I had it all mixed up, you know, like, so... University of Michigan, Michigan, Spartans, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, that's a dangerous confusion in Michigan, would you guys say? <laughs> Isn't there this football game that the two of them play and it's a really big deal? Last night, uh, my wife and I uh, went out to dinner and then we, I said, I want to go see the University of Michigan. So we did, we drove there. And I just thought, well, we just parked and we looked at the campus, beautiful, man, that is so beautiful. But I wanted to see the big house. 
So I did. I nabbed my way over to the stadium. There's this, what's the big M stand? Anyway, so there's this big M on both ends of the field. So I feel like a tourist. I wanted to jump out of the car, do a selfie in front of the big house, but I don't know. There was nowhere to stop. Anyway, so we really are enjoying Michigan, and I'm enjoying getting to know uh, your church. I really have. And I met Brad this morning. It's Hugh Susser. You have a great pastor. You really do. And I just want to say, you have a great worship team up here. I'm telling you, I, just, I, I have I've heard a lot of worship teams, I really have, and you guys are in the very top of that list. It's really, really wonderful to see. Okay, <clears throat> down to business. You know, every now and then, I think that we come across portions of Scripture that speak to us in a unique way. They are stories that resonate with our hearts. I bet you have some scriptures exactly like that. And for me, there is a short passage, a really sweet passage, that comes from the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 17. And my hope is that you and I will be able to make this passage our own this morning as we study it. How about that? <clears throat> All right, so let's read it together. It is in Luke 17, beginning at verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, now go show yourselves to the priests in Jerusalem. And as they went, they were cleansed. <clears throat> One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and this man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the Samaritan, rise and go your faith has made you well. It's a sweet little story. Now, in order to understand this story effectively, there are a couple of detours that we have to, to make in order to just give the background. And when I give you that background, I think suddenly the story springs to life. The first thing is, we have to have some sense of where this is going on. And the Gospel of Luke gives us some geographical tips. So I made a map for you, and we'll put it up on the screen, and you can see where these things occur. So notice at the top of the map, I have Galilee and the Sea of Galilee um, illustrated there. And then you can see toward the middle of the map, there's a black dot, and that's where Jerusalem is located. So the story says that Jesus meets these 10 lepers somewhere between Samaria and Galilee, so you can see that I've got a red dot toward the top, and I suspect that's where this miracle occurred. This is where this happened. Now, here's the other thing that you might not know. <clears throat> if you were traveling from that place to Jerusalem, remember, Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem, then you would have to travel 43 miles down to the oasis of Jericho. Then you would turn left, and you would go, well, right, if you're walking, 15 miles to get up to Jerusalem. So roughly, where this conversation takes place and Jerusalem, it's about 50 or 60 miles, okay? Hold on to that. You and I are going to use that in a minute. The second little detour I need to take to fill in this story is about skin disease. 
Now it says, of course, in the story that these guys have leprosy. The ancient world was really concerned about skin disease, and they have one word in Hebrew that is used for all of them. It's sarat in Hebrew. Doesn't matter about the word so much, but it just means any skin disfiguration. So every time you see the word leprosy, it doesn't necessarily mean Hansen's disease, which we know is leprosy today. It wasn't like there was an epidemic of leprosy every place, but they just simply had one term for all of it. But they were concerned about skin disease. Skin disease actually was a really widespread. I'll tell you why, it's a really simple answer. Soap had not been invented. You know, when I tell my students occasionally, imagine the rest of your life without shampoo. <laughs> it's post-traumatic stress disorder sets in immediately. <laughs> but you would be surprised what soap and hot water does to the hygiene of the world. It really does. So anyway, they had their own way in which they cleansed, and that's a subject for another time I can explain. But anyway, you had skin diseases of all sorts, and they were worried that they were contagious. In fact, not just contagious the way you and I think of contagions, they felt that actually a condition like that could pass to your skin I mean, skin to your clothing, and from your clothing, actually, to the things in your house, to your furniture. And from that, it could go to your house itself. So this idea of a contagion, which could really spread in a crazy way, is something they were preoccupied with. So they watched for these disfigurations. Now, the only person who could actually say that you are clean and healed after one of these happened to be a priest in Jerusalem. All right, now let's look at Leviticus chapter 13 for a moment, and here you can see a description, a warning about what to do with these diseases. <clears throat> when anyone has a defiling skin disease, now some translations will call it leprosy, but here you can see it's just simply sarat, they must be brought to the priest. The priest is to examine them, and if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and if there is a raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic disease, and the priest shall pronounce them unclean. You see how that works? He, is, he does not have to isolate them because they are already unclean. So there's no other ritual they have to go through to determine that they are unclean. Once you have that skin disease that looks that bad, you then are unclean. Now, <clears throat> what this means is, once you have the designation of unclean through skin disease, you are placed in immediate social isolation. Therefore, you have to leave your family, you have to leave your village, you lose your job, you live on the margin of society, you essentially wander the countryside, you are in a very, very sad state of affairs. In fact, as a courtesy, <clears throat> what you need to do as you walk through the countryside is that you warn people before you get near them that you are in this terrible medical and spiritual state. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, and you can see the warning. Anyone with such a defiling disease, that's again that Hebrew word sarat, <clears throat> must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and they must cry out, unclean, unclean. Isn't that amazing? As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, they must live outside the camp. So this is a remarkable thing. These people are walking contagions and people were afraid of them and you can imagine how terrible it was socially for you as well. So that is why when these 10 men, <clears throat> they begin to approach Jesus, 
They stay back from him and they call out, Lord, have mercy on us, have pity on us. They are being respectful. They know what the law says, they should not come near to him. So what they are hoping for is not just simply the curing of this disease. If Jesus does cure them of this skin disease, it is going to be the restoration of their entire life. They will be able to go back to their villages, they will be able to go back to their homes, no doubt have a full reintegration to their jobs, all of that kind of thing, a complete restoration. By the way, <clears throat> as a small aside, Jesus is not afraid of skin disease. I just want to tell you that. This ancient world was really worried about it. Jesus is never worried about it. Let me take you off on a little detour again um, over to Mark chapter 1, verse 40. <clears throat> Here's an example of a story where Jesus actually has a personal encounter with a leper. A leper came to him begging him and kneeling and said to him, if you choose, Jesus, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and… Now that's the thing that you don't do in this culture. You don't touch someone who has a skin disease. Jesus violates that social rule again and again throughout his ministry. He's not afraid of this. So Jesus says, I choose, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once saying, see that you say nothing to anybody, go show yourself to the priests in Jerusalem and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. In other words, offer a sacrifice. So there you have the routine. <clears throat> If you have been declared clean or healed, it seems, then you have to go to Jerusalem, and when you go to Jerusalem, then a priest is the only one who can make this announcement. Here I brought with me a picture also of someone who is being touched by Jesus. It's one from one of the Jesus films. I love that picture, don't you? It's a powerful picture, and it shows Jesus, he is unconcerned about those who have this kind of status. It's a reminder to us that no matter what you're walking around with, Jesus is unafraid, amen? Okay, so one of the things that's interesting about you know, pictures like this is that inside of this culture, if you have this status of unclean and you have a skin disease, as I said to you a minute ago, everybody is worried that you're gonna pass it to someone who doesn't have the skin disease and therefore the contagion moves from the unclean to the clean, see how that goes? What's fascinating about Jesus, and there's no precedent for this anywhere in his world, is that no one has ever heard of someone who is so clean they can pass clean to unclean, the other direction. That's really interesting. So therefore, when someone who is unclean is touched by Jesus, instead of the contagion going this direction, Jesus' purity goes that direction and wipes it out. It's really fascinating about Jesus. He makes people that clean. All right, so we know where it's happening. We're about 50 or 60 miles from Jerusalem, somewhere in southern Galilee. We know something about skin disease. And then thirdly, we need to know something about Jerusalem. So the priests in Jerusalem were probably the best educated that, that were there, they were able to determine things like diseases that you need to be warmed of. They had studied a great deal, and so that are, makes sense. They're going to make the final declaration. They will examine you, and then you have to go through a ritual bath. 
Um, there are baths, which are, we've discovered, that are all around Jerusalem. Here, I brought a picture as well of one of these. You see, that is carved into the bedrock of around Jerusalem. Um, it is a catch basin, um, and you can see the stairs going down. Can you see that small divider on the stairs? Can you see it? It's broken, but I think you can make it out. So therefore, what happens is that you have to strip down to a loincloth, and you walk down the right side unclean, you immerse yourself in the water, and then you come up the opposite side and you are clean. It isn't about hygiene and soap and all of that. This is ritual water, and that can only be filled from, with water that comes directly from God. Rainfall, for instance. That is why it is called living water. And of course, that occurs, that is mentioned in the New Testament on a number of occasions. So anyway, there are rituals you have to go through when you get to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is really an important part of the story. This is why Jesus says to the ten lepers, start walking toward Jerusalem. All right. Okay, that's our background. You see how this works together. And now we come to the meaning of the story. There are two things I think that are strange about this story that catch my attention every time I work with it. <clears throat> The first is the nature of the healing itself. Notice that these 10 men are not healed immediately. Like in Mark chapter one, Jesus just reaches out with that guy, touches him, and the healing takes place at once on the spot. But that is not the case here. Instead, what happens is that Jesus tells them to begin hiking toward Jerusalem for their verification with a priest before they have the evidence of their healing. Now, that's a really big ask, you guys. It really is. I mean, I did the math here for Michigan a little bit, and it's like saying to somebody here, just start walking toward Lansing, and somewhere along the way, you'll be healed. Are you kidding? That's craziness. Who's going to do something like that? That's precisely what Jesus says to these guys. No evidence of their healing, and yet they're headed toward Jerusalem, their bath, and an encounter with a priest. This to me is remarkable, that they would start out in faith when they don't have the proof. This is the first reason I like this story, because occasionally I think God makes promises to us God moves you into a new place in your life. He opens a new chapter in your life. He tells you to go to some place unknown, and you're not sure how it's all going to turn out. Have you been there before? I, I sometimes think for myself about our move 25 years in Chicago, working at Wheaton, being at Willow Creek and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's like move to West Michigan. Who's in West Michigan? Who's at Calvin Sem The whole thing is scary. Is it going to work out okay? And it's been okay, except for the Cubs. So, this is the first thing that impresses me. These men step out in faith. And if you look at verse 19, you can see that Jesus recognizes that that faith played a role in the promise. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to the Samaritan, rise and go, your faith has made you well. How did they demonstrate that faith? They stepped into the promise when they didn't have the evidence. Here's the second thing that impresses me about the story. The second thing is, this healing, when it happened, 
of course, they were halfway down the road, I imagine, somewhere halfway to Jerusalem. They stopped and one of the guys probably says, look, no more leprosy. That must have been a moment, right? We're healed, can you believe it? And what happens then is nine of these men head on to Jerusalem to get their verification, to take the ritual bath and rejoin their families. But one man decides to go back and he has only one thing on his mind. It is thankfulness. It is gratitude. In other words, he has encountered the gracious generosity of Jesus. He has encountered the grace of God and that grace of God has led to an outpouring of gratitude in his heart. That's what happens. He wants to come back to Jesus and show that kind of thing. So let's go back and look at those last two verses. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back and praised God with a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. So here's the second reason that I like this story. This is a story about gratitude. This is a story about a man who has experienced the grace of God and then has a changed life. And that change is signaled by gratitude. I think that's often the case. People who have really encountered the grace of God, they have thankfulness at the very root of who they are. Now, the essence of this gratefulness thing is what I think is so fascinating. It is fascinating, of course, that they stepped out in faith, but I think what's really fascinating, the heart of the story is gratefulness as a symptom of discipleship. Gratefulness as a byproduct of encountering God. Gratefulness, I think, is so important to us. Well, for my money, I think it is deeply underrated. Here are four ideas that I think you and I can take to the bank. Four ideas that we can take to the bank. Let me share them with you. I think they've really made a difference for me. First is, gratefulness is a choice. Gratefulness is a choice. Consider the 10 men. Only one chose to come back to Jesus. The other were just eager to cash in on the healing and they headed to Jerusalem. Do you not think that these men had been living with bitterness for a long time? Do you not think that they were cynical and angry and hopeless? Do you not think they went to sleep at night counting the years they had missed with their families? Sometimes when you're living with that kind of a personal catastrophe, it's very hard to be grateful. And so consequently, even when these people were healed, I would imagine it was easy for them to reach back and reclaim that bitterness and anger, certainly. Because they might have asked the question, well, okay, Lord, I'm really grateful that you healed me, but why did you give it to me for 20 years? You're not grateful when you're feeling grateful. You have to choose gratefulness. And gratefulness takes a lot of courage sometimes. Look, each of our lives has some degree of discouragement and some degree of happiness. Would you agree with me? Yeah, it's kind of like this, isn't it? 
And sometimes you say to yourself, you know, it's 80% discouragement right now and 20% happiness. Sometimes it goes the other way. Who knows? But there is always some discouragement there. In the midst of your discouragement, gratefulness becomes a choice. It's a spiritual discipline to embrace gratefulness as a reflex of your own life. That's the first thing. You gotta choose gratefulness. You don't wait around for it to show up. Second thing is, gratefulness is an act of faith. Sometimes it is hard to understand what goes on. Sometimes the misery and the catastrophe, the suffering and the confusion around you is so overwhelming, you cannot find any way that you're going to register a feeling of gratefulness inside of your heart. But I want to tell you this, cultivating gratefulness in hard times means that you are trusting God at the deepest level of your existence. Cultivating gratefulness in the hard times of your life means that you are trusting God at the most profound, deepest level of your life. So therefore, as one young mom said to me, I was talking about this once to um, a young mom, and she says this, she says, you know, it's a lot like having a newborn baby. A newborn baby has got two ends, and you've got to decide what you're going to concentrate on. There's the poopy end and the smiley end. <laughs> and life has got both, the poopy end and the smiley end. And you've got to decide, what are you going to think about? What are you going to choose? And sometimes it takes a lot of courage to make that act of faith. There is a woman who wrote a book that I find sort of fascinating. It is Anne Voskamp. Anyone heard of 1,000 Gifts? Anne Voskamp's book, 1,000 Gifts, came out in 2012. It was uh, the magazine Christianity Today made it their book of the year, a New York Times bestseller, all of this kind of thing. She is a young woman who is from Ontario, Canada, um, lives on a farm with her husband, has six or seven children, but she had always been, I don't know, haunted by a tragedy that took place when she was young. At five years old, she and her younger sister and her mom were in the front yard, and they watched the youngest daughter, maybe a three or four-year-old, run into the street and get killed immediately by a vehicle. It was a terrible thing. And so here it is, it ended up with Ann Voskamp's mother going into psychiatric care. Um, Ann was haunted by it her whole life. Anyway, so she was in a place in her life where she was just living with this haunting despair and she just really couldn't get out of this, thinking if that's the way life works, it's gonna happen to me as well. So therefore, she decided that she is going to begin making a record of the things that she can be thankful for. And that is the origin of this book. For some of you, it could be meaningful. For others, it may not work for you. But here's the part that I like the best. <clears throat> Anne Voskamp also opened a blog and a website, and she invited people from all over the world to write things down that they were thankful for just to encourage each other. And there have been thousands and thousands of people who have posted and the things they are thankful for in the midst of their misery really wakes you up. Here's one that I like. Here's a woman who was writing late at night. I'll just read it to you. 
it is three o'clock in the morning. I cannot sleep. My husband is snoring like a freight train. I am grateful that I'm not alone. Amazing, really amazing. Gratefulness is an act of faith. Gratefulness is a choice. And if we weave it into our lives, it helps us sustain us through the things that we experience. Third thing is, gratefulness is subversive in a cynical age. Gratefulness, I think, is an act of resistance. It is an act of resistance. I mean, do you agree with me that we are beginning to live in a world where every motive, every, we delight in the cynical insight, every motive is questioned, we become easily pessimistic, we are easily negative. Have you watched the news lately or have you just simply turned it off because it's making you too depressed? Do you know what I'm saying? We live in a world right now where this darkness kind of closes in on us. I tire of it, but gratefulness is subversive. Gratefulness gives you an opportunity to resist the negativity that is around us. Have you ever been in one of these conversations that are spiraling down right into the sewer? I mean, something like this. Did you ever hear this in your family? Can you believe what my aunt said in front of my mom about my sister-in-law? And then the whole thing is just horrible gossip. Have you guys heard something like that in your family? No, you guys probably don't because you're Christians. So right. <laughs> probably where, you, if you've ever been at work, standing around drinking coffee at work, and you hear something like this. Can you believe what my coworker said in front of the manager? She is such a suck-up. And then suddenly you're thinking, yeah, I've never liked her anyway. Did you ever met her husband? Oh my gosh, right down and go. So try this next time. So when that conversation is beginning, all you have to do is stand there and say, you know, I just appreciate how generous our aunt is. What? Who says nice things? Or at work, say something like this. I just really think that our company's benefit package is nice, really, really nice. I'm so grateful. Are you sick? They will call a therapist right away for you. No, coffee at the company. No, you're supposed to grind away with your anger. Gratefulness is subversive. It is an act of resistance. Gratefulness pours water on fire. Third idea. Fourth thing, gratefulness will change you. Gratefulness will change you. When you live without gratefulness, your heart begins to shrink. Joy disappears. You begin to expect bad things. A friend once gave me this marvelous quote. If you're looking for a new tattoo, do this. <laughs> gratefulness is an antidote to a small soul living in a house of fear. Gratefulness is an antidote to a small soul living in a house of fear. And gratefulness helps you become a large soul living in a house of faith. Do you like that? Gratefulness helps you become a large soul living in a house of faith. I think that's amazing because that's what I want. I don't want a soul that is shrinking. 
I want a soul that is expanding. I do not want to live in a house of fear. I want to live in a house of faith. One of the things you would not know about me um, took place about a year ago. 11 months ago, my dad passed away. Now, he was 91 years old, and one of the things characteristic about my mom and dad is that they have always lived a really grateful life. I mean, it was sad that my dad passed away. I had the privilege of actually being in the hospital, in the room, next to his bed, holding his hand. I, that's, I'd never done that before. So there he was, he died right there, um, 91. It was sad, uh, not tragic so much, but sad. He'd lived a wonderful, wonderful life. My mom and dad, had been married for 69 years. It's incredible. Yeah, isn't that neat? So anyway, um, I was there, and so in the week after, I, I organized the funeral for my dad and all that, and then I was talking to my mom afterwards. That's the hard part, the conversation with my mom the week after my dad dies. And so I said, how are you going to make it? How are you going to be, how are you going to get through this, Mom? Are you going to be okay? And she said, you know, this is hard after 69 years. It's like having a part of your body chopped off. It's very hard for me to imagine this. But then she said this. She said, gratefulness is the secret to happiness. Every single day, I have to choose. Do I concentrate on the death of your father or do I concentrate on 69 wonderful years with him? She said, happiness comes from gratefulness. My mom very much is like a mentor who shows the way to all of us what gratefulness looks like when things are especially hard. But I have other mentors as well. Um, another part of my life that you wouldn't know about <clears throat> is that God has opened doors for me to go to the Middle East a lot. I'm in the Middle East probably twice a year sometimes, and this happened through my whole career, from Iraq all the way to Egypt. So I, have, I know the Arabic-speaking church. Um, <clears throat> and inside of the Arabic-speaking church, which has lived with so much struggle, the war in Iraq, the war in Syria, oh my gosh, the Christians there, what they live with is terrible. But it's the church in Egypt that I want to tell you about today. <clears throat> this, is, this is a church that has had a very bad 25 years. In fact, the church in Egypt, there are about 350,000 Protestants, and the rest, about 9 million, are called Coptic Orthodox Christians. The Coptic Orthodox Christians have had almost 70 of their churches burned to the ground in the last, I think, 12 or 15 years. Burned to the ground by fundamentalists. It's really scary. And you know what's interesting about the Coptic Christians in Egypt? When the church gets burned to the ground, you would expect the anger would be overflowing when you lose your church, and then you would somehow organize some activity of revenge. That's the Middle East. But the elders come out to the ruins of their church with cans of spray paint and spray in Arabic so that all of their Muslim neighbors can see it. Jesus said, love your enemies. Are you kidding? 
the burned out front door of your church now has sprayed on it in Arabic, love your enemies. 2017 was horrible for the Egyptian church. Um, in fact, the Christmas just before 2017, 2016, um, there have been ISIS suicide bombers who have actually come into these churches, blown themselves up in order to kill the Christians who are inside. In fact, on Christmas Day in Cairo, Egypt, 29 people were killed inside of a small church by an ISIS bomber. It's really astonishing. But the story that is stunning happened on Palm Sunday 2017. <clears throat> what happened is that there was a suicide bomb. Well, if you get into an Egyptian church, you're not going to get into an Egyptian church today unless you go through a metal detector. And there is army all over the front. The government tries to protect them, right? And so anyway, there was the metal detector at the great cathedral of Alexandria called St. Mark's. St. Mark's Cathedral had the big metal detectors, and there was a man standing right next to the one, an elder called Nassim Fahim. Nassim Fahim was standing next to it, and he noticed he was directing all of the people through the metal detector. That was his only job. But he noticed a man who came up the stairs to St. Mark's who did not want to go through the metal detector. He paused at the steps. He was hedging back and forth, and, 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 and he was told by Nassim, sir, I'm sorry, you, you've got to go through the detector. The man took a step back, opened his coat, and he was covered with explosives. He pulled the cord, he exploded, and tore the face off of St. Mark's Cathedral. Nassim Fahim was never found. Forty-five people were immediately killed. It was known throughout the Middle East as one of the most incredible acts of violence against Christians. And the question on the street in Alexandria and in Cairo was this. In a revenge culture like the Middle East, the question was, now the Christians are going to get us. Now they're going to arm. They're going to be killing us on the streets. We just know the Christians are coming after us now. Everybody thought that Egypt was going to blow up because St. Mark's had just been blown up. So therefore, the Pope of the Orthodox Coptic Church knew he had to go on radio and TV immediately. Here's a picture of how this was covered in the Western media. This is in a, here's a picture of the, this was given lots of Western media attention. But in the next slide I want to show you, this is the Coptic Pope. You've probably never seen a picture of him. His name is Tadros II. That's him in the middle. So Tadros decides he has got to go on Egyptian state media. All TV channels cover it. All radio stations tune in. It's a national announcement. Tadros says, I am speaking to my Christian brothers and sisters. This night, Palm Sunday, we do not find revenge. I call on you to forgive the bomber. I call on you to pray for your Muslim neighbors. And I tell you this night, we are all called to be grateful people because this bomber never made it into our sanctuary. That 45 dead could have been 4,500. So we are grateful to God that he spared us 
a greater tragedy. That was Tadros. Now, the other thing you might not know is that Egypt actually has a Stephen Colbert. <laughs> Everybody watches him before they go to bed. He's funny, he does politics, he does jokes, all the usual stuff. He's the Colbert. Here's a picture of him. He comes on his show right after Tadros. His name, his name is Amir Adib. He's a secular Muslim. He's not a Christian, a secular Muslim. He comes on and everybody's wondering, what is Adib going to say? Is he going to make a joke? The lights come on in the studio. Adib is in front of the camera and Adib opens with this. Who are these people? Who are these Christians living among us? You kill them and they forgive you. You blow up their churches and they pray for you. Who are these Christians? I could never do what they do. These people are weird. And he's serious. The miracle testimony of the Egyptian Christians was gratefulness in the midst of the smoke of St. Mark's. I want and I hope you want to be weird. I hope that you want to have generous gratefulness in your heart. I hope that you want to be subversive wherever you live, wherever you work. I hope that you want to be grateful just like this Samaritan in our story. Let's do this together. Let's be weird together. Let's somehow find opportunities where we are the people with a grateful heart in a deeply cynical age. If God is speaking to you about this for your own personal life, don't walk away from that moment. Don't step away from those feelings you're having right now. If you feel convicted that, look, gratefulness needs to be a part of who you are because you are a deeply negative person, begin today. Be like that Samaritan. Hey, when you came to church, did you see those huge chalkboards that are out there in the lobby? Did you guys see those things? Those are for you. As we leave church today, here's what I would like you to do. Think about this. As you're walking out, pick up a piece of chalk. It's all right there. And I want you to write something you're grateful for on those boards. And let's fill them. Hey, here's a really crazy subversive idea. You want to be subversive? Do this. This will drive your whole family crazy. Go to Target, get one of those magnetic whiteboards and stick it on your refrigerator. You know those things I'm talking about? You ever seen those, right? And then get a little oil pen, you know? And every day, have something new on the whiteboard that lets you express what you're grateful for.
Can you imagine that? And what you will begin to do is weave the reflex of gratefulness into your heart so that over the years, there may come a time where gratefulness is hard to reach, but if you have cultivated that muscle, it will serve you as it is serving my mom every morning. Some of you may have come to church here and you're listening to all of this and you're saying, oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to join these weird people. Or it may be that God is prompting in you that you would like to have a different kind of life or that you have no relationship with God and you just don't know where to begin. This could be your moment where you actually have an opportunity this morning to begin that walk into weirdness where you might have a new life with God born inside of you. And if that's the case, I would like to just, if you would indulge me, to lead us in a prayer. And if you are a Christian, pray along with me and we can pray for those who are with us this morning because we want them to step into this as well. Let's pray together, shall we? God, I believe you have given us eternal life. We don't deserve it on our own. I have sinned against you. I've failed you. I've lived contrary to your truth. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. You rose again to give me new life. I'm trusting you to forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me and you want to begin walking with Jesus, You've got to do something next. There will be prayer ministers here in front of the stage. Just come down and talk with one of them. Pray with one of them. That's your next step. You received a card, a little green card, that when you came in, you know, there's a tear-off at the back of that, and there are boxes at all of the entrances, both here and in our regional sites. Drop that in so that we can encourage you, that we can help you to begin that walk. But above all, friends, take with you this sweet little story from Luke chapter 17. Cultivate gratefulness inside of your heart. Be subversive. Be different. And discover how much joy will return to everything you do. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much.
no sacrifice.